students often see our classes as boxes that they need to check in order to graduate. By reframing our courses around fascinating, big questions that students can connect with, we can help our students recognize the value of these learning experiences. In this episode, we explore examples of courses that do this well. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Ken Bain. Ken is an award-winning teacher, the founder of the teaching centers at Northwestern, New York, and Vanderbilt Universities. He is the author of two very influential prior books, What the Best College Teachers Do and What the Best College Students Do. His newest super courses was released in March, 2021. Welcome, Ken. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're really glad to talk to you. You visited Oswego a few years back and people are still talking about your visit. Oh, wonderful. I had a wonderful visit. Our teas today are, are you drinking tea? No, my doctor won't let me do that. And I haven't had a good cup of tea in, oh my goodness, many, many years. Oh, that would make me so sad. Yes, indeed. It does me too. I can't drink tea, anything that has caffeine in it. Ah, total bummer. Yes, it is. (laughs) I have about the strongest caffeinated Irish breakfast tea you can have. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, the last cup of coffee that I had was in 2002. I remember the date. That's because it's oh, no. a traumatic experience to go cold turkey. Actually, that's how I started drinking more tea. I had to cut out caffeine, so I started drinking herbal tea. Well, I do drink herbal tea from time to time. I just don't happen to have a cup right now. I am drinking Tea Forte black currant tea today. Oh, wonderful. It's really good. So we've invited you here today to discuss super courses. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin of this book project? Well, my wife and longtime collaborator, Marsha Marshall Bain, suggested that we do a course around the invitational syllabus, as we've come to call it, what we used to call the promising syllabus. And we began collecting those syllabi from around the world and began looking at them. And in the midst of that endeavor, Peter Dorothy, who was the longtime director of the Princeton University Press, contacted us one day and said, would you come down to Princeton and I'll buy you lunch? So that sounded like a great invitation. And we went down and he asked us what we were working on. And I told him and he said, oh, you're looking for super courses. And that triggered a whole avalanche of reconsiderations of what we were doing. And we shifted the invitational project over to the super course project and began looking for courses that offered what we had been calling a natural critical learning environment. And we began that project back in, I guess, late 2007. Maybe before we talk about your new book, you could talk just a little bit about the concept of an invitational syllabus, since that was the origin of this project. Oh, sure. It's the idea of inviting your students into the class rather than requiring them to come. And rather than 
focusing upon topics. It focuses upon big and enticing questions. So that the invitational syllabus begins with an intriguing question, an important question, a beautiful question that students find so enticing that they say, I want to be a part of that. And it becomes a self-motivating experience. So that's part of what we meant by a natural critical learning environment, is the creation of that self-motivating experience where students would pursue things not because someone was threatening them with a bad grade or because they were just looking for credit, but because they became deeply interested in the question. Can you expand a little bit upon the idea of the natural critical learning environment beyond just the invitational syllabus? Sure. We now have identified, oh, I guess about 20 some odd elements of what we call a natural critical learning environment. And the first and most foundational of those elements is that it's organized around those intriguing questions. And its intention is to foster what the literature calls deep learning. That is learning in which students think about implications and applications of what they're learning and the possibilities of what they're learning. It's learning where students look behind the words on a page and think about all of those implications and applications and possibilities and how things are connected to each other. So that's the foundational element and the chief goal of the natural critical learning environment is to create an atmosphere where students can and will likely pursue that deep approach to learning and they develop what we call deep intentions to learn. But how do they do that? How do we get them to that point? So what is the natural critical learning environment? Well, it's an environment where they can try, they can come up short and get feedback and try again without penalty, without any kind of situation where they are punished for coming up short. In other words, if you think about it, it's the kind of learning environment that we expect as scientists and as scholars. We try out things. And if they don't work, if the data doesn't confirm our hypothesis, we modify it, try again. And we'd be terribly insulted if our first effort out of the box was, and people would say, oh, that's nonsense, that's crazy, go away. We try things, get feedback, and try again. And so that's what the natural critical learning environment does. It's also an environment where students can work with each other. People learn in community arrangements. So they work with each other to grapple with the problems. And they learn, and this is another key element of the natural critical learning environment, they learn by doing. Sometimes that means learn by teaching. And by teaching, we don't mean necessarily that they stand in front of a mirror and deliver lectures. In fact, the teaching that they develop often doesn't even include lectures. It includes a way of fostering very deep learning on the part of other people by creating dialogues, creating exchanges around big questions that move students toward a deeper understanding and a deeper application. Going back to that question of the big questions, because that's an important part of the approach. I think you talk about that both at the level of the course as a whole in the invitational syllabus, but also when you're devising individual components of your course. Could you elaborate a little bit on what faculty should think about when trying to select those questions? Yeah, 
and it's more than selecting them, it's framing them and framing them in a way that will intrigue students. Now, some of the best super courses we came across were questions that sometimes began with questions that were much larger than the course and much larger than the discipline. But in the course of students pursuing those big questions, they discovered that, well, I need to learn chemistry to answer this question, or I need to learn history, or maybe I need to learn both. Because many of the super courses were multidisciplinary, built around a big and complex and interesting, fascinating question. And then the students would devise ways of trying to answer that question, and the professor would build an environment where they could progressively tackle those questions. I can run from the very simple to the very complex. One of my favorites, and one that I've talked about so much, and actually written about going all the way back 10, 15 years ago, is one that we do mention briefly in this new book, but it's joined by other really exciting examples. First, that old example comes from 2006, and there was a professor at Princeton at the time, as a political historian and political scientist, and who wanted the students to examine the impact of that period we call Reconstruction, in period from roughly 1865 to 1877, and to ask themselves, what kind of impact did that period have on subsequent political and social developments and political institutions? Now, as a historian, that's a very intriguing question to me. But I don't think you will find many undergraduates who are just dying to pursue that question. So she didn't ask that question initially. Instead, she built a course around a question that she knew was already on the minds of her students. Now, you think about what was on the minds of students in the fall of 2006. A big question. When I ask, American teachers these days, they often can't remember. (laughs) I recently did a workshop in China and in far southwestern China, and they got it immediately. They remembered. But the question was, basically, what in the world happened with that disaster we call Katrina? Now, there's a lot of evidence that that question became the dominant question in American politics in 2006, 2008, and helped determine the outcome of the election in 2008. You look at Mr. Bush's numbers of approval, they fell off the cliff after Katrina. So what caused that disaster? So she organized a course she called Disaster, Katrina, and American Politics. And students signed up immediately and became an extraordinarily popular course. Well, how do you get from there to an examination of political history? Well, it happened on the first day. She went into the class, and the first question she asked her students was, when did the disaster begin? Did it begin in August of 2005 when the storm surge hit New Orleans? Or did it begin in 1866? with the beginning of Reconstruction in the Crescent City. And with that question, she transformed 
their interest into her interest. And it became the driving push of the whole course. But let me give you another broader example of the book. A guy by the name of Andrew David Kaufman, who teaches at the University of Virginia, about a dozen years ago, organized a program he calls Books Behind Bars. His field is Russian literature, late 19th and early 20th century Russian literature. And that literature is quite famous for asking big questions, questions about what's my purpose in life? What's my destiny in life? So what he does in this course is he helps students to go into a maximum security correctional facility for young people, people the same age as the UVA students in the course. And they go into that prison and they help those other young people confront those questions by reading Tolstoy, by reading Turgenev, raising the questions and then struggling with them in a class that they do for them once a week. In short, they learn Russian literature by teaching Russian literature and not by lecturing, but by creating an environment, a natural critical learning environment where their students, the residents in the correctional facility, will learn just as deeply as they will. And it's a transformative experience for both sides. And it changes lives. And it's self-motivating. That makes sense? Yeah, these are really powerful examples. And I love that both of them have really strong leads with the course title. Yeah. And if you'll notice also that both of them appeal to a sense of altruism. And we discovered that many of these super courses do just that, even in fields like physics and engineering. You do things to help other people. One of our favorites is a course that some high school girls in a high school in Northwest Los Angeles developed for themselves. And the only help they had was they were invited into this program and invited to come up with a project. And they live in a relatively poor neighborhood. They said, well, the biggest problem in our neighborhood is homelessness. And we see the homeless out on the street and in the park and under Interstate 5 that runs near the high school. And what we want to do is we want to create a portable tent that is solar powered. So they will have heat and the cooking facilities and light and so on and so forth in their tent. Now, to do that, they had to learn engineering. So they organized their own courses. They organized their own sequence of topics that they would pursue. Now, they had some guidance. The teachers over there kind of giving them hints or answering questions, should we pursue this next? But they learned everything from electrical engineering to programming and lots of things in between, but they also learn just the basics of being an engineer. It's transformative. They created it, and therefore they took ownership of it. Now, the super courses and the super institutions that we studied immerse a lot of what they do in the research on human motivation, research pioneered by Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan. And they argue in their well-documented research papers that human beings have three basic needs and that if you meet those psychological needs, three basic psychological needs, we have physical needs, 
go beyond these. But three basic psychological needs, and if you meet those psychological needs, people are just naturally motivated to try to learn. You don't have to stimulate it. It just occurs naturally. And the problem is often that the way we set up schooling for people doesn't meet those needs. It actually counters those needs. And so we get classes full of uninterested students, students who are signing off and not really becoming involved. And to address that situation, many of these courses deliberately use DC and Ryan's work to build an environment where, what shall I say, where people are just naturally driven to do what they need to do. Those three needs, by the way, are a need for autonomy. That is, we like to be in charge of our own lives. We don't like teachers being in control of our learning. We want teachers to help us with it. That's different, but not to control it. And beyond autonomy, there's also a sense of competence. So people, if they feel like if they don't know something, they can learn it. And they feel that what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset, that mindset that says, I may not know this yet, but I can learn it. I may not know calculus yet, but I can learn it. Well, the person with the fixed mindset says, I'm not a writing person. I'm not a computer person. I'm not a whatever person. And they give up and they don't try to learn and to push the envelope. And then finally, it's a sense of relatedness. People like to be part of a broader effort and an effort in the super courses that's often larger than the class itself, larger than the discipline. But they take on these large projects because they believe that it can make a difference for themselves and for other people whose lives they will affect. One of the things that's challenging, though, for a lot of faculty is that we do have to assign grades for all of this. So we know ultimately students are going to get these grades, and that tends to lead to more of a reliance on extrinsic motivation. What can faculty do to provide that sort of encouragement and to help create a growth mindset when students are going to struggle with some of the material at first? Yeah, it's to give them lots of opportunities to try, fail, receive feedback, and try again. Now, that seems really daunting to many faculty members. They say, look, I have 200 students. I can't do that for all of the students. But there are ways of doing that, and that's one of the things that we explore in the book. It's difficult to describe, so I won't attempt to do so in the conversations here. But the courses develop ways for students to give feedback to each other. Sometimes they have students make an argument about their own learning and then have each other to assess that argument and make an argument. And that second part that I mentioned is really an important part of the natural critical learning environment. That It's an environment where people deliberately learn to give themselves and each other feedback. So they set up the whole system of marks around that idea that students were going to give each other feedback on how well they're doing, and they're going to give themselves feedback, and that they learn to assess their own efforts and work through those. Often in the course of the term, credit is often given for participating. That is, if you do the work, you get credit for it. And only at the end, 
you approach anything like a summative judgment that we usually call a final grade. One of the things that we do in the book is to explore the history of grading. And we do that to help people see that grading is, for one, a fairly recent invention in education. The idea of putting a number or a letter on someone else's thinking, that didn't emerge until fairly late and really didn't become entrenched until the late 19th to the early 20th century. And that changed everything. So we want people to see this in that kind of context, that there's nothing natural or automatic about having the traditional approach to grading. And so what people have done in the super courses is find ways of saying, okay, now you've joined a community, you're going to be helping each other to learn, and you have responsibilities toward that community. And to help each other, to assess each other, to give each other feedback, substantive feedback, not scores, substantive feedback to one another. And we'll try to give you feedback as well, maybe as a group, maybe individually in smaller classes, but give you that opportunity of trying, coming up short, and being able to try again without that affecting your overall final grade. And then the final grade is based upon an accumulation of lots of things and perhaps a final project, a final paper, a final presentation, or something of the sort, rather than just simply accumulating, you get 10% on this and 15% on this and 20% on this aspect of the grading. How can we help students embrace the concept, though, of productive failure, that process of trying something, making mistakes, and then learning from that experience? Because that's something that many of our students don't naturally come to because many of them haven't seen it before up to the point when we have them in class. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the keys is to provide them with very dramatic and enchanting learning environments at the very beginning of their experience so that the students say to themselves, this is going to be different. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, my favorite example of this category. It came from a program that was offered, again, at a secondary school is called City Term, and it brought students from around the world together right outside of New York City, and they used New York City as their classroom. And the first Saturday in the program, they're invited to go on a scavenger hunt, and they're given a list of items that they might look for in New York City. One of them, for example, that they often use was find the first wooden escalator. So the students go off in groups, and there's a teacher that goes with them, but the teacher doesn't interfere. They just keep them safe. And beyond that, the students go wherever they want to. It's a wild and exciting adventure. And then at the end of the day, they end up in Central Park on a picnic, and they discuss with each other, how did you find that escalator at Macy's? You know, what questions did you begin to ask yourself? Who did you talk to? How did you reason through the process? And by sharing ideas with each other, what they are actually doing is learning good research techniques. And that's a wild way of learning good research techniques, to say the least. But it's something that the students will always remember. And they will latch onto that. And they will latch onto the course now because that first experience was something that was quite dramatic to them. 
Now, we don't all have the opportunity to use New York City as our laboratory or our classroom and uh, take students on a scavenger hunt. But we can imagine creating a first assignment, and I'm reluctant to use that word assignment because we found often that these courses don't talk about assignments. They talk about opportunities and invitations to students. It's so exciting that it begins to break down all of their sort of stereotypes in their mind about what's going to happen in a class. So in Andrew Kaufman's Books Behind Mars course, they're first asked to apply for the course. So they have to explain why they want to be in the course. And that helps to begin to break down barriers. And then the first day in the class, he begins to break down the barriers by first telling them about a three-minute story about a young man who read a old short story by a guy by the name of Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, as we called him in the West. And about halfway through this story, in other words, about a minute and a half into the story, the students began to realize that it's a story about Gandhi. And it's a story about an important transformation in Gandhi's life as a result of reading a piece of literature. And so Professor Kaufman says to his students, we want you to think about a point in your life when a piece of art, maybe a piece of literature, maybe a painting, maybe a song, but some piece of art had a deep impact upon you and your thinking. And the students began to discuss with each other. And they began to realize first that this isn't going to be a course where the teacher just talks to them and they take notes and then later take a test on whether or not they can recall the notes that they took. But it's going to be a class that they will dominate, that they will do most of the talking and most of the thinking. And by creating a different kind of environment, you then can move to ultimately getting them to think about such questions as, how are you going to assess yourself? How do you know whether or not you're making progress and whether or not you're learning and you're learning deeply? And the key point here is helping students to learn what it means to learn deeply. That learning deeply is not the traditional strategic learning. Oh, I'll learn this for the test. I'll make an A on the test and I'll make an A in the class. No, it's self-driven learning where you begin to look behind the scenes, where you intend to look for ways in which this course can transform you and transform your thinking. So essentially, I think what you're saying is we need to help encourage students to develop more reflection on their work and on their learning process. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the key, getting students to think about their own learning and help them with categories that will enable them to think deeply about their own learning. Categories like deep learning versus strategic learning or surface learning. The strategic learner just wants to make straight A's, (laughs) and they'll do whatever is necessary to make those straight A's. The surface learner just wants to learn enough to pass the course, to be able to perform on an exam or write a paper or whatever it is that's required of them. But neither one of those two leads to deep intentions, that I deeply want to understand how calculus works and how it can help me in understanding the world in which I live and how this applies to me 
and my field and how it applies to my major, even though I'm not a mathematician, and how I can change the way in which I think. So developing those deep intentions and fostering that deep development of intentions becomes extremely important. One of the things that you were just mentioning in terms of the strategic learners and the surface learners is how much many of our courses are probably structured with them in mind rather than a deep learner in mind, and that we perpetuate these kinds of learners rather than deep learners based on our class structures. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think we began to break away from that by the way in which we frame the questions we raise. You think about the example of Hoffman's course. Or let's take an example from physics. Eric Masur at Harvard has pioneered a lot of the elements of the natural critical learning environment and super course. And the students in his course do not learn physics by listening to lectures, boring or otherwise. They learn physics by actually doing physics. They do three big projects in each semester of the course. It's a two-semester course. Some students take only one semester. But in either semester, they do three big projects, and they're massive projects, and they work with a team. These students in a team of about five or six students, and they work together to try to attack that problem. And each of the projects has a backstory. For example, you've been contacted by a charity that was created in Venezuela by a well-known philanthropist and musician who became quite convinced that music, and symphonic music in particular, and being part of a symphony orchestra, is a transformative experience that can help very poor people rise out of their poverty and to develop a different mindset that enables them to conquer some of the economic circumstances they face. It's a program that now has about a million students worldwide who are engaged in it. But it has a problem, namely that some of the students are so poor that they cannot afford to buy real instruments. Now, you've been studying waves, and music is made up of waves. So your team has been invited to create new kinds of instruments that can be made from things that you find in the junkyard. Now, that new instrument has to be able to be tuned over two different octaves, has to stay in tune for a certain amount of time. But by creating these new kinds of instruments, you can help these young children. Now, that's a compelling project. They learn physics and the physics of waves by actually doing the project and demonstrating that they can do it. Another project is more fun than anything else. Do you remember the old Rube Goldberg? cartoons? I do. I don't know if Rebecca does. <laughs> I know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, there's this guy. He was an engineer and he was also a cartoonist from San Francisco. He used to draw these cartoons where you would attempt to do something very simple, like crack an egg, by a very elaborate piece of machinery where balls would roll down ramps and would trigger gates that would open up other gates that would cause other balls to fall and so on and so forth. So it's a very elaborate, unnecessary project. So on the Rube Goldberg project, the students are invited to create a Rube Goldberg 
type device to crack an egg. <laughs> Something you can do very simply by knocking the egg against the edge of your kitchen counter or your kitchen table. But no, you had to create this very elaborate project. Well, to do that, all of Rube Goldberg's drawings and inventions were based on physics. That ball rolling down a ramp at this angle would acquire this speed, and it would open this door and would result in this hammer hitting this hammer that would cause this ball to roll down this ramp, and that would et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you had to know the physics in order to create these absurd projects. But there's a lot of fun in that, a lot of fun. And the first project they do, I think, is one that was just strictly on fun. They build a racing car and then race each other, like many of them did when they were back in the fifth grade. And they have great fun in doing that. Another one is one where they have to design a lock that other people can't open. And they get points for one being able to keep other people out of their safe and for being able to crack the lock of other people's safe. So a lot of wild times. Now, there's a textbook that stands behind all of this. And the textbook is written by the professor, and it lays out everything that he might otherwise have said to them in a lecture and more. Now, how do you get students to read that textbook? One, by creating these enticing projects. But another way you do it is by making reading of the textbook into a social experience. So Masur and his colleagues created a program, which is now available to everyone, called Perusal. And using Perusal, students can read material together. So in the sense that, okay, we've got an assignment, we need to read chapter two. We're all reading it together. You're reading it on your computer. I'm reading it on my computer. And as I read along, I may have questions. So I'll highlight that text. I'll raise the question. It's like writing in the margin, but everybody can see what you wrote. And he organizes the groups into groups of 15 or 20 students apiece, and they can read each other's comments, and they can respond to each other's comments. And to participate in the class, to be a participant in the class, what it means is that they will keep up with offering the comments to each other and their comments on the text itself, making comments on what's written there to raise questions, to answer questions, so on and so forth. And what they found is that reading completion goes from 40-something percent at best all the way up to 95 to 100 percent completion. I've been using Hypothesis in my classes for the last three years, and it's a very similar type tool. Yeah, there are several others out there. And students really enjoy that, too. They enjoy seeing what other people are raising questions are about. They enjoy answering questions for each other and posing questions to each other. And it seems to make the reading process much more engaging when it becomes this social activity. Exactly. Well, that's the whole idea. And then, of course, behind that is this set of really intriguing, interesting, fascinating projects. And there's a course at an engineering school in Massachusetts that offered a course for a long time. They no longer offer the course, unfortunately, but they offered it for over a decade. I think it's called the history of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and the first day of class, the students go in and they see on the front table stuff. It's the kind of stuff you might find by going down the aisles of Walmarts and picking things off the shelf. 
just a wild assortment of things. And they're invited to come down and to pick out one of those items and then to begin to explore it, explore its history. Why was it created? What was it created out of? What materials, what kind of implications does its creation have for society? Does it just clutter up society and create a backlog of unrecycled material that creates environmental problems of one type or another? Or exactly what is it? Students had a great deal of fun just exploring stuff. And the course ended up by looking at some of the history of technology through the lens of a well-known American patriot, Paul Revere. But Paul Revere was also an expert in metals. And so they explore engineering of metals through the eyes of Paul Revere. And it becomes a way of mixing disciplines in a way that makes each discipline more intriguing and more interesting rather than, oh, you study this, then you study that, you make no connection between the two. Hey, one more example. Oh, sure. There was a, a course we looked at in Southwest China, and we, we went to this school, Southwest Jiutong University in Chengdu. And it was a course organized by a young woman who teaches physical education. And the first day of class, the students are invited to think about what kinds of sports do they enjoy doing? Is it rock climbing? Is it soccer? Is it basketball? What is it? Now, can you imagine creating an exercise device that will make you a better soccer player or rock climber or whatever it is that you want to do, your favorite sport. And then the whole class goes to a sports equipment store, and they began to look at the equipment that's already there, and they began to think about, okay, how could I create something better? Now, as part of the team, it's not just this PE teacher, but it's also other people. Ah, you need someone from biology, perhaps. Help them think about, well, what kind of exercising do the human muscles need? What kind of social environment do you need to create here? So you need other experts. And if you want to make this a product that can go on the market, maybe you need a marketing professor who can help you devise a marketing plan of the new product that you're creating. Now, I told this story to my broker several years ago. And his response to me was, in communist China? And I said, yes, they have a market economy just like we do. And they're interested in marketing and learning marketing. And they have marketing professors just like we do. And so they create this environment where students learn by doing. And they learn by mixing disciplines rather than keeping them apart. Much more interesting. I love the move towards more interdisciplinary work, something that I feel really connected to, but it really gets people, I think, more excited about different disciplines when they're more intertwined because we understand how they're related to one another. Yeah, exactly. So if you're going to study the human brain, for example, how do you make it interdisciplinary? One of the professors we studied taught in the medical school and taught medical students about the brain, but she was asked to create a course for undergraduates. This was at Vanderbilt. And so the course on the brain 
for undergraduates mixed every discipline you could imagine together. Because as she argued, everything is connected to the brain. So you might be studying music, if that's your interest, or whatever your interest might be. You might be studying ethics, if that's your interest. And then you're encouraged to think about what part of the brain handles ethical questions? What part of the brain helps you to appreciate and understand music? What part of the brain helps you to do this or to do that? So they're studying all of the aspects of the brain, but they're also studying all of these other disciplines, from Holocaust studies to a wide variety of other things, and raising deep ethical questions along the way. And she offered this course for 10 years, and it was a transformative experience for most of her students, the overwhelming majority of them, breaking down stereotypes and prejudices and helping them to also think more deeply about how their brain operates. Sounds like there's a lot of classes I should sign up for. Exactly. I thought at one point I was talking to some high school students about where they want to go to school. And I said, well, it'd be wonderful if you could go to a school that would mix all of these super courses together because they're strung out all over the world. Maybe there's a way of doing that virtually. I don't know. Or maybe as a result of your book and other similar work, perhaps more faculty will start doing this type of thing in more of their courses. Yeah. And perhaps then designing a curriculum that includes professors from a wide variety of different disciplines and students from each of those disciplines working together in small groups to tackle problems of physics and then later tackle problems of the brain or tackle problems of history or tackle problems of, well, you name it, and have an opportunity to sort of tour super courses around the world. That would be a wild experience. I still remember examples that you used here when you spoke at Oswego, and I remember examples when I first read your first book on what the best college teachers do a while back, in large part because you weave in narratives along with the theory and the reasoning behind these concepts. And I think the use of narrative helps make the story much more interesting and helps raise curiosity and makes things much more memorable. Is that something faculty should strive to do in their own classes? Yes, I think so. And the professor I was just mentioning at Vanderbilt, I think, did that and created a course that was part history and part neuroanatomy and part philosophy and part literature and part music. But they were all around narratives of one kind or another. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think creating that narrative. Human beings love stories. And if we begin to understand things in terms of stories, it becomes much more memorable to us, and we remember what we learn. And if you think about learning, it contains at least these three major aspects. We've got to encounter new ideas and procedures and so forth. So we've got to encounter new material. There's the encountering part. And the second, there's the making sense of it part, where we relate it to other things that we've learned. And then the third aspect of it is retaining it long-term. So we remember what we remembered, what we learned. And I think encountering all of this in stories makes it much more memorable. But I think what the super courses do is they have students read stories to learn physics or history or other kinds of things, but they don't tell them those stories orally for the most part. They do not use lectures. 
to do that first aspect, that is, of introducing the material. Usually that's all that happens in a class is to, you're introduced to the material in a lecture and you never get around, you never have time in class for those second aspects, the, the making sense part of it and the things that you might do to retain it. So super courses are built in a way that they spend their time working on those other aspects because the first one, the one of conveying the new information and ideas to the students, that can be done with reading, with films, with other ways. But the part of struggling with meaning, with the teacher and with each other, that's much more complex. And that requires a different kind of approach. And that's what the super courses offer. This project began with a collection of syllabi. And we should probably note that those syllabi do make it into the book as an appendix. So not only do you have the stories of how these classes work, but it provides faculty with examples of how these things are implemented in an invitational syllabus. We took excerpts from some of the syllabi, not from all of them, but from a few to give people illustrations of what we're doing. One from math, one from the sciences, and one from the humanities. We always end by asking, what's next? (laughs) Good question. Well, I have on my agenda and have been working on a book aimed at parents. And the working title of the book sort of summarizes the whole idea of the book although a working title is 11 words long and it's way too long. So we've got to find a way to achieve the same thing with a shorter title. But it's how to help your kids get the best out of school. Now, we chose those words carefully because the first task is defining what we mean by the best. And in part, it means learning to learn deeply. So how do you help your kids to do that? And We chose one of many words we might have used for kids. We said kids, because it's shortened to the point we're trying to shorten the whole life as much as possible. And I'm working on that with a colleague, Mindy Maris, and we have a due date with Harvard Press of 2022. So that's coming up rapidly. So we've got a lot of work to do over the next year and a half, but we've already done quite a bit of work in organizing that and so forth. So That's the next major project. It sounds like an exciting addition to the collection that you've already have out and rounds out the offerings. And then somewhere in the far distant future, I play out entirely. I would love to take all that we've learned and how to understand the best in any field. And that was a process in itself. How do you define the best and how do you collect evidence that something is better? I'd love to do a book that might be entitled What do the best coaches do? (laughs) And to look at coaches in a wide variety of different sports. But that'll be my swan song if I ever get around to it. Thanks so much for joining us today and sharing some insight into your newest book. I know that a lot of our listeners will be looking forward to reading it soon. Well, I look forward to hearing feedback from your listeners. And as we said toward the end of the book, we hope that at some point every reader will say, I wouldn't do it that way. I'd do it this way. But when they say that, we hope that they will base that judgment on strong evidence that that presents whatever alternative they come up with, presents a better learning environment than the one we describe in the book. 
So we hope this idea of a super course is something that is organic. It continues to grow. And five years from now, somebody will summarize something about super courses today, meaning the super courses of 2027 or 2030, and may describe a much different book than the one that Marsha and I wrote. But it's an organic process, and we're looking forward to the conversation we hope that the book stimulates. Well, thank you. It was great talking to you again, and we're looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.